Well, hey, friends, welcome to Teaching Thursdays, an edition of the Better Bible Reading Podcast with Kevin Morris. Continuing our study in the now famous book, (laughs) because of how often we've been using it, Teaching Thursdays, Theoretical Practical Theology by Peter Van Maastricht. We're in volume number one. Please, if you don't have a copy of this book, I highly recommend that you purchase it. You can use the link in the video description or you can search for it yourself. There's somewhere you like to buy your books, uh, but it will very much help you go through the material that we've been going through so far. This book is uh, so far been a huge positive impact on my life uh, as long as I've been working my way through it. I trust that it's been the same for you as well. We've covered a lot of ground uh, in kind of interacting with some of his ideas in volume one, which is entitled uh, Prolegomena. So we're going over foundational issues of systematic theology, but we're doing it in Peter Van Maastricht's uh, kind of a custom way of treating theology, and that is in the theoretical and the practical, uh, in the doctrine and the practice. And that's, of course, the pattern that we've been following on every single one of these episodes, because that's the pattern that he follows in every single category and topic that he goes through in this book. And our time together today will be uh, no different than that. Um, So far, Uh, I have been highly encouraged by uh, those of you who have uh, not only been longtime listeners to the podcast, but even those who have stumbled across this particular playlist because you've been trying to find something that's dedicated to systematic theology, especially the study of somebody like Peter Van Maastricht. So I really want to tell you that your encouragement has been very encouraging to me, and I hope that this channel continues to be a help to you as we work our way through uh, God's Word in a way that is uh, systematic. And of course, we've been talking about the great benefit of doing that, how it makes us uh, greatly appreciate the Bible, uh, not diminish the Bible in favor of what other people have said, but people like Peter Van Maastricht uh, have been such a great impact on the church ever since Uh, the time of his life and death, because he was one of those men who made a great deal about pushing us back to the Bible and developing our doctrine from the Bible and developing our view of practice in the Christian life from the Bible. Chances are you've heard of Patreon before because it's what a lot of YouTubers use as a way to uh, get support for their channel. I'm happy to say that uh, this episode is brought to you by my generous supporters at patreon.com. They have been a great source of help to me, and they have been encouraging in my efforts to put out good content for all of you. So if, and only if, you have been helped by my channel, Teaching Thursdays, the regular podcast episodes, the Bible reviews on YouTube, if there's something that has really stuck out to you and has been a huge encouragement and it's helped you and you're wondering uh, what is a way that you could support uh, what I'm doing on Better Bible Reading, uh, then I just want to invite you to go to patreon.com, P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com forward slash Better Bible Reading. When you go there, you'll be able to choose uh, from a variety of different support tiers. If you don't want to choose any of those support tiers, you can just uh, support your own custom amount. When you do, you'll gain access to exclusive content, 
as my way of saying thank you so much for being a supporter of Better Bible Reading. Well, we're still in Volume 1, however, and we are now, if you were to just take your book and kind of lay it open at the halfway point, uh, that's pretty much where we're at. Uh, it doesn't necessarily mean that we're halfway through the volume, because so much of the material in the beginning of this book had to do with the editor's preface, the translator's preface, a biography of Peter Van Maastricht's life, uh, the sermon for his funeral. Uh, so there's there's quite a bit of things that we interacted with before we actually got to the uh, book itself. And of course, we spent several weeks going through his introduction, which was 30 pages entitled The Best Method of Preaching. I highly recommend you go back and check that out if you have not already. But we're in Prolegomena, Part 1, Prolegomena and Faith. And we will very quickly uh, be finishing this up. But just for reference, uh, if you have a book, or if you don't have a book but you want to know what page we're on, that can be found on page number 98. We have been working our way through uh, what he's called the different uh, theorems of the nature of theology, uh, which we are now getting to the definition of theology. This is something that might be somewhat of a repeat to some things that he said earlier, and definitely things that he said in his best method of preaching. Uh, But my goal on this episode is to start on page 98 under the third theorem, the definition of theology, and we'll make our way to the practical part on page 107. So we start things off uh, working through his same systematic treatment of theology, and he offers it in the dogmatic part, the doctrinal part of theology, on page 98. He deals with that all the way to page 104, then he gets into the elenctic part, so the, the argument or the defense of this doctrine. And then we get to page 107, the practical part. I want to treat that separately because it's not only the practical part of this little section of the book, but it's somewhat of a summary to the entire chapter when he starts to deal with the practical part. So even though it's only, you know, five pages in length, I want to save that for next episode just because there's some really good insights that he shares that I want to interact with separately, okay? So he says very plainly, simply, uh, his definition of theology. We've covered it a couple times already, but now he says it very explicitly. It treats it in its own section here. Theology is the doctrine of living for God through Christ. I wonder if somebody asked you what your definition of theology is, having not read Peter Van Maastricht, what would you say? How, how would you present your definition of theology? I've thought about that a lot for myself. What would I say about theology? How would I define it explicitly? Um, he's made the arguments already for us of why it has to be explicitly Christian and not just theology in general. We, we spent time talking about the various other camps of theology, so other religions, paganism, uh, the view of theology that is not restricted to Jesus Christ. 
Um, he even talked about some of the so-called in-house uh, conflicts of theology, that theology could include something about Christ, but it could promote a Christ who's in opposition to Scripture. It might say things about Jesus that aren't found in Scripture, or it might not say things about Jesus that are found in Scripture. Um, in this case, he's bringing us back to that big idea that theology does have to be defined in terms of Christ. But it's fascinating to me that he has such a practical emphasis that he places on his definition of theology. Um, I wonder how many of us would define theology as the doctrine of believing in God through Christ. How many of us would emphasize the theoretical? How many of us would emphasize the knowledge element of theology? Peter Van Maastricht, to maybe our surprise, he doesn't say that theology is the doctrine of believing in God through Christ, but he also doesn't say that theology is the doctrine of believing in God and living for God. Through Christ, he just says that theology is the doctrine of living for God through Christ. He says, this theoretical, practical Christian theology is nothing less than the doctrine of living for God through Christ. In other words, the doctrine that is according to godliness, First Timothy 6.3. That's one of his favorite verses so far in this entire volume. He keeps referring back to 1 Timothy 6.3 that talks about doctrine according to godliness. And he's emphasized for us, I think so helpfully and so accurately, uh, how godliness, so we got to be thinking about living, for, about practice, about conduct, that godliness cannot be separated from doctrine as if godliness is in a separate category, or as if godliness is simply one aspect of doctrine. The way that he proves that is he says, doctrine is right, doctrine is accurate, insofar as it is according to godliness. Now that's the Apostle Paul's argument, not Peter Van Maastricht. Peter Van Maastricht is just utilizing Paul's argument to prove his case. So he says you can't have right doctrine unless it's according to godliness, unless it promotes godliness. And you can't have that godliness divorced from that doctrine. So for Peter Van Maastricht, he's looking to the, the end game of doctrine, godliness. That's why he says that doctrine is living for God through Christ, and in that way and for that reason, we can summarize Christian theology in that way, as living for God through Christ. Really fascinating argument, but I think if we, you know, if we think about it in that way, we can understand why he would say that. Uh, he says, it's proved from the scriptures the entirety of this theology is occupied in forming the life of a person and directing it toward God. 
insofar as everything encountered in the scriptures flows together and aims at this end. So living for God through Christ, according to Peter Van Maastricht, is both the broad and the central theme of the Bible. I think that's why when we read passages such as Revelation 21, 22, it describes people in heaven in their godly traits, and it disqualifies people based on their ungodly traits and character. Um, you could run the risk if you just tried to pry that out from the Bible in isolation. You could run the risk of assuming that by the time you get to the book of Revelation, uh, going to heaven or going to hell is based off of whether you do good or whether you do bad things. So it's almost like we could make the error of assuming that the doctrine of justification by faith alone, not according to works through grace alone, is a principle that gets tossed out the window by the time we get to Revelation, apparently. Suddenly it's about works, it's about uh, what we do. And I think the reason that the Bible emphasizes that principle of works and conduct um, is not because that uh, suddenly we've forgotten that we're justified by Jesus Christ and what he has done, not what we've done. Um, we could assume that the Bible throws that out of the way, but it's not that that kind of argument is being made in the book of Revelation. It's that the book of Revelation, and I'm just using that as one example, is looking at that broad and central theme of doctrine, of belief. It's that what we believe about Jesus Christ is supposed to promote godly conduct. I think about what the Apostle Paul says in Romans 8. Yes, there's a lot to be said about justification and sanctification and glorification and regeneration and election and predestination in the book of Romans, especially in chapters 8, 9, 10, 11. But the centerpiece of that whole discussion in Romans 8 is that we would be conformed to the image of Christ, that we would live like him, that we would be like him. That has a whole lot more to do with um, representing Jesus than just what we believe, what we say. The uh, obedience factor is there. It's built into our salvation. It's built into our justification. It is built into the whole enterprise of doctrine, of theology, that we are to become like who we worship. And I think that's why the book of Revelation emphasizes uh, doing good or doing evil. It's not to take away from the fact that we are justified by grace alone and faith alone. It's to emphasize that that grace alone and faith alone is promoting us towards exactly what the Bible promises for those who are saved by grace alone and faith alone, is that is 
that they would bear the image of Christ in real time, in their lives. That's why Peter Van Maastricht is saying you could look in the broad category or the central uh, theme of the Bible and you see that Scripture is about forming the life of a person and directing it toward God. You cannot rip out the practical from the theoretical and still have Christian theology. That's Peter Van Maastricht's argument. Uh, he says it's confirmed by several reasons. He gives a, a wide range of them. He says if you want to think about a, a science or discipline, he says every knowable complex that admits of an orderly arrangement of a great number of conclusions pointing them in the same direction is what constitutes a science or a discipline. We're calling theology a science or a discipline. Then we have to grant that it has an orderly arrangement that the great number of conclusions point towards the same direction. The system of theology would have to be comprised in that way. He says that theology is a unified arrangement that points towards a central theorem or theme or concept. Uh, he says, because nothing is offered in theology that does not incline... Or, I'm sorry, let me back up. He says, there is no science that teaches how to live for God through Christ except Christian theology. He says, whether we want to talk about medicine, ethics, politics, economics, all of these things have good elements to them. All of these things have, have truth in them, but none of them by themselves promote living for God through Christ. That alone is what we find in Christian theology, and that we find in Christian theology alone. Uh, Back in the day, this was probably you know during the time of Peter Van Maastricht, during the time of Jonathan Edwards, during the time of even old Princeton, late 1800s, early 1900s, you had theology in the way that curriculum was presented in divinity schools, where you studied more than just theology. You studied science, you studied art, you studied philosophy, and all of this. Theology was called the queen of the sciences. That had more to do than just the notion that theology was on a higher pedestal than all of the other sciences. But what it meant was, beyond that, that theology was the apex of all sciences, but also that all of these sciences drew upon Christian theology. And Christian theology was the centerpiece that helped all of those other disciplines make sense individually and by way of agreement together in a worldview. You can't learn all there is to know about God in medicine or in economics or in the other examples that Peter Van Maastricht gives. Uh, that seat is only occupied by Christian theology. But 
Christian theology is what emphasizes the importance of these other sciences, these other disciplines. And that was the beauty of the early educational system. Nowadays, you go to any university, there's a lot of diversity, but there's not a lot of unity, uh, which defeats the term university at the outset. Not only that, but all of these departments operate in isolation from one another. And God forbid that you show up to a medical class or a philosophy class or a math class and try to make the argument or try to make the connection between what you're learning in that class and what you're learning in the theology class, which nowadays, unless you go to a Christian institution, is just a comparative religions class or a secular study of Christian literature. So it's a literature class or it's a worldview class, but it's not a theology class. Uh, your professor will laugh at you. Your classmates will laugh at you because there's no concept of a university anymore. There's no concept of agreement of these uh, uh, smaller sciences coming together under the banner of the queen of the sciences, theology. That system is just not in place anymore unless you go to a distinctly Christian institution where that viewpoint is being promoted and uh, has a renaissance experience. But Unfortunately, those are far and few between. But this was the idea back during Peter Van Maastricht's time, and it should be because it's according to truth. Um, he says, From these things we conclude that theology alone directs the ends of all, proper to each, to a certain common and highest end, which is God, so that in this discipline God indeed might receive his own glory but in God and his glory, we might receive perfect blessedness. And these two come together if we live for God. So Christian theology has, at the heart of its concept, uh, God receiving his glory, and we as his creatures receiving perfect blessedness. He says these come together if we live for God, i.e. these come together in Christian theology. Uh, as a Presbyterian, my doctrinal standards in my denomination are the Westminster Standard, the Westminster Confession of Faith, and the catechisms, the shorter and larger catechism. That opening question in both the shorter and larger catechism is, what is the chief end of man? And man's chief end, the answer is given. That first question is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. But the glory of God and the blessedness of the creature come together in the big idea, uh, the essence of what we're talking about here. Uh, so Peter Van Maastricht, living now you know, before the full articulation of the Westminster Standards as we have them today, but you can see that idea playing out very explicitly in his theology. Uh, some other points uh, that he says. Theology is called more than just doctrine, but it is called doctrine as one example in the Bible. He gives a range of different 
terms that are used to describe theology, and he calls out uh, various scripture passages. He says a theology is called doctrine. He says it's called teaching, instruction, a pattern, teaching according to godliness, as we've already seen in 1 Timothy 6.3. He says we call it doctrine not because we reject the names of the philosophical habits of understanding of knowledge and wisdom, prudence and art. He says, after all, the Bible also uses those terms, understanding in Proverbs 2, knowledge in James 3.17, prudence, Proverbs 1, Ephesians 1, discernment of good and evil, Hebrews 5. He says, theology is not so bound to any one of these habits, as if the rest are excluded, but rather it contains the perfection of all of them par excellence. For which reason we prefer the broader term doctrine, so that all the habits that we're talking about, discernment, understanding, instruction, teaching, all of those are included in it. So when we say doctrine, what we should have in mind are all of those terms uh, that help to emphasize what we're talking about. So we're not just talking about information. The worst thing we could possibly think of when we use the term doctrine is that we're using a synonym for the word information. Uh, even note that these terms, when we're talking about the doctrinal aspect of theology, these terms have a practical emphasis. Now you're thinking of life. You're thinking of how you put it into practice. That's what's uh, being communicated in terms like understanding and wisdom and prudence and teaching and instruction and discernment. That's the idea behind those. So he's saying even in the uh, essence of how we define doctrine, there's a practical emphasis being made. He says, um, not only systematic theology or theological precepts, but also habitual theology or the skill of living for God, which arises from these precepts, depends upon divine faith, and so therefore must also be taught or revealed by God. Say, so if we're talking about God, if we're talking about living for God, if we're talking about conducting our, our lives in a way that's pleasing to God, this is not something that we as fallen imperfect creatures can conjure up on our own or invent on our own. It's also not something that we can maintain on our own. He says this is based upon and dependent on divine faith. It's not only based on faith uh, from the uh, front end, where this is something that has to be revealed to us from God himself, and that we have to receive in that manner by faith, uh, but it's an ongoing process of faith, of walking by faith, of entrusting ourselves to God. So that's why. Uh, very soon, in the way that he arranges his idea of uh, theology as it is promoted in sequence, is very soon after this, he's going to talk about faith in Christ, which is, according to the rules of systematic theology, there's no real rules, just the common practice of systematic theology. We don't deal with the doctrine of faith in Christ until way later on. That's, that's something that happens later on in the sequence of how we treat in a systematic form. But for Peter Van Maastricht, he includes it 
on the front end, probably for this reason, uh, to emphasize that it's something that we have to interact with at the very front end of our view of Christian theology. If we say Christian theology, uh, we can go no further until we define it by living for God through Christ, then we have to start talking about faith. We have to start talking about this Christ and what it means to have faith in him and how that supplies us throughout the entire endeavor of theology. I think it's a pretty strong argument. And of course, there's no rule when we're talking about systematic theology of what order we treat these things in, because we're not treating them in order of importance. It's just how you would uh, arrange the Bible in a system. What order would you treat the A to Z of theology? For Peter Van Maastricht, he sees an, a level of importance, indeed a level of emphasis and necessity of dealing with the doctrine of Christ and saving faith on, on the front end, rather than waiting until later on. Just something to note that, that kind of sets him apart from other systematic theology. Uh, he says um, that these doctrines, this, or excuse me, this central doctrine is taught in various ways throughout Scripture. Uh, we have in mind revelation externally. We also have in mind inward illumination by the Spirit. And we have, finally, in teachers and preachers. So on the front end, we have the external revelation of God. We have the, the, the written scriptures given to us, uh, or the oracles of God during the time of the Old and New Testament that were uh, given to writing so that we would have them. Then you have the work of the Spirit, which illuminates, which brings to life, which emphasizes and reveals the truth of God's Word that has been put to writing for us. And then you have men that God raises up by the Spirit, uh, by the skill of the vocation of rightly handling the Word of Truth, pastors, teachers, preachers, who are given to us for our good to emphasize what God's Word says. And so again, these are not necessarily levels of importance, but he's saying uh, kind of the three different ways that we would maybe think about how doctrine is taught, how it's communicated. Uh, so primarily from God, uh, supremely from God, in Revelation, uh, illumination by the Spirit, and then God raises up those among us in the context of the church, in the context of uh, theo theological institutions, to communicate that and to teach that and to equip and disciple people. And of course, all of that is based off of the illumination of the Spirit and from the sole authority of the scriptures that God gives by revelation. He says uh, a couple things to think about living for God. He says, when we think about living for God, how would you define living for God? He says that there's different ways in which we could think about the concept of life, uh, the life that we're talking about when we say living. <laughs> what do you mean by living? You have to understand what is uh, kind of bound up in that phrase, living for God. What is the life that we live for God? He says we could think about it in 
three different ways. First, the life of nature, then the life of grace, and finally the life of glory. Sounds an awful lot like Thomas Aquinas here. Uh, The life of nature, in that we are made in as a union of body and soul, uh, we are created in the image of God. Then, by grace, flowing from our original righteousness and moving into our uh, spiritual and moral progression. And then glory, which is resulting from the union and communion of the whole person with God, out of which one acts blessed. So he's going to define these a little bit more uh, explicitly. I'll just read these for us in their entirety. The life of nature, although not properly subject to theological precepts, yet it is according to circumstances either destroyed, afflicted, or prolonged as a reward or punishment for having done good or evil. And these second acts, vegetative, sensitive, rational, are directed and turned toward God by theological precepts. The life of grace, number two, both with respect to its first act and second act, is subject more directly to the laws of theology since spiritual life and death are destroyed and restored by sin and faith respectively. Likewise, good works flow from the life of grace or from faith conveyed by regeneration are directed toward the glory of God and are ordered to the precept of the will of God. And then finally, the life of glory. The entire life of glory depends upon the directing of theology, that it may start here by the life of grace and be consummated hereafter in heaven. And it is not different from the life of grace except by degrees. So, if I could summarize this in a way that's not exhaustive, but at least maybe just helps make sense with the distinctions that he's offering to us, uh, the life of nature has to do with the fact that we are obligated to live for God by the mere fact that we are creatures, that we are created by God. We are not our own, um, and that applies even before the rest of that verse, we were bought with a price. We are not our own even before we were bought with a price. We are God's creatures. The principle of that all the way back to Adam and Eve, even before there was any sin or any need of redemption, Adam and Eve were obligated to live for God based on the fact that they were creatures made in his image and had an obligation to worship him and to give him glory and find their blessedness in living uh, up to the expectations of mankind, uh, why we were made to glorify God. We were made for his glory. We were made to love him. And that is not something that suddenly becomes true after we need to be saved from our sin. That's something that is true of us because we're made in God's image. We were made to commune with him. The life of grace speaks of the fact that we are now unable to fulfill that obligation. We are now outside of communion with God. We are now enemies of God. And so we need saving faith. We need uh, this uh, 
<clears throat> renewal of the principle to live for God, and we depend upon him for that. And so he gives us a new life. He regenerates us. He brings us to life from spiritual death, spiritual life. And we are now at peace with God. We are now no longer his enemies, but we are his friends. We are his children. And that principle is found in the whole of the Christian life here on earth. And then he says, while that is true, it's not the final story. The final story is the life of glory, where it is. Uh, he says it is not different from the life of grace except by degrees. Now, what he means by that is the degree, the incline, uh, the increase from the life of grace to the life of glory is that the life of grace is still convoluted. The life of grace is still a battle for us because we still struggle with sin. We're still fallen creatures, though redeemed. But the life of glory is all of the good things that we experience in the life of grace to the nth degree. And the absence of all of the negative things that we experience in this life of grace, i.e., no more sin and death, no more struggle internally uh, to live for God through Christ. When we get to heaven as believers, we will be able to perfectly live for God through Christ. We'll never stop living for God, and we'll never, never stop doing so through Christ, but we will do so with the absence of sin and death. We will do so with the absence of internal wrestlings of whether we want to please God or ourselves. We will want to and will in fact be able to glorify God and in turn we will receive our blessedness as his beloved creatures. So a beautiful picture of the way that Peter Van Maastricht ends his uh, consideration here. So I mentioned that we'll go all the way to the practical part, uh, but I forgot that uh, when we get to the elinctic part on page 104, uh, there are some more things that I want to interact with, and I think uh, because it's only about two pages worth of stuff, I want to add that on to the practical aspect uh, that we'll consider on our next episode. Uh, and the reason for that is because we've already made some arguments, we've already done some elinctic theology in this conversation, and I think that this next uh, uh, treatment, the problems, the object, calls them, um, will help to be considered in the context of the practical part. And so, uh, while I did say we'll go all the way to page 107, let's stop on page 104 at the elinctic part, and we will pick things up there as we finish out the chapter uh, with our next session together. So I hope that this was uh, informative for you. I hope it was helpful. I hope it was practical. Uh, and I do appreciate you spending time with me. Uh, please keep an eye out on the YouTube page, especially for some more additional content coming out, including more Bible reviews. If you haven't checked those out, there is a playlist created for those. And uh, hopefully you will find those helpful if you have been thinking about what it means to study the Bible, uh, what Bibles you should use, what the pros and cons of those different kinds of Bibles are. And if you are just uh, at a loss or if you're looking for something to really uh, reignite, restart your approach to studying the Bible, I want to invite you to go to betterbiblereading.com forward slash free class. I have a free course on how to read the Bible. We talk about a lot of those issues of translations of Bible types in a lot more depth. 
And that is my gift to you for saying thank you for being a listener. Thank you for being interested in what I'm doing. And I do hope that it's helpful. You can create an account for free on there. You can start and go through it at your own pace. Again, completely free. Uh, but I hope you'll be blessed and benefited by that. But until next time, this is Kevin with Better Bible Reading. And I will see you on another episode real soon. Take care.